Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. We suppose that some of you might be listening in the car right now. However, we know that the vast majority of you are listening while sitting atop an actual mountain of student debt, holding in one hand a tear-soaked communications diploma from your undergraduate institution that promised you would be free, that promised you would have a great job, that promised that you would learn to think critically? Did you instead receive an apparent lifetime of cubicle-based indentured servitude, an unwavering docility to the nice people in your television set, and the overwhelming urge to end every phrase with an overtly interrogative inflection? If so, the Magnus Fellowship might be for you. Learn more at magnusinstitute.org fellowship. That's magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship. And this is the Magnus Podcast, Episode 12, A Conversation with Dr. Glenn Arbery. Ooh, shots fired. Uh, so, uh, all kidding aside, if you are listening to this podcast and thinking to yourself, I could use more of that, and maybe you do regret that your education was not as liberating as it was made out to be, we've invented the Magnus Fellowship. So, at magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship, we're getting ready to launch live and interactive online classes in great books-based liberal learning. No pre-taped recordings or videos to watch. This is the real deal, live and interactive. The best part is the faculty. Uh, we're assembling right now a body of senior fellows at the Magnus Institute. We're going to be releasing shortly. that are going to be offering these classes. Some of the great minds that you've heard in these interviews in this podcast up to now are going to be serving as faculty. So Anybody can register. You don't have to have attended one of these colleges on our list of endorsed institutions. Anybody can become a Magnus Fellow. If you already have a degree from one of these endorsed institutions, you automatically get the lifetime fellowship and all the benefits therein. But anybody can enroll in the fellowship, apply for the fellowship. It's totally free. You're going to get some great learning out of it. Please tell your friends about what we're up to if this strikes you as something worth sharing. magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship. And today we have an interview with a gentleman who needs no introduction. So I'm not going to provide one other than by telling you this is a conversation with Dr. Glenn Arbery, who is a great mind and a pioneer of liberal learning, the current president at Wyoming Catholic College in Lander, Wyoming. We talk about everything in this interview from the role of gymnastic and poesis in authentic liberal education to this, uh, the differing notions of liberal versus liberal, the inhumanity of student debt, Flannery O'Connor, even get into the, uh, the discussion on uh, Ron MacArthur versus the John Senior model. Great stuff in here. Please share it with your friends. And without further ado, here is our sit down in Lander, with Dr. Glenn Arbery of Wyoming Catholic College. What is it that makes Wyoming Catholic such a good place? I think it's uh, 
partly what you've named, the students and the faculty. Um, faculty are, are wonderful uh, Christian witnesses to what they teach. Uh, the students we attract are adventurous, and I think that's because of the very nature of our curriculum, which is rooted in the great books and in the great Western tradition of liberal arts, but also includes this element of the outdoors, which they experience from the first week they get here. One of the distinctive things about our program is that students go on a 21-day backpacking expedition where they get to know each other, they get to know their capacities, and uh, begin to understand what we're going to be doing in the curriculum. So the whole of it, um, the strong emphasis on faith, you know, the four years of theology every student takes, all those things contribute to what makes this place special. And also the poetic dimension, you know, that comes through the teachings of John Sr. and the experience of every student here, memorizing poetry, but also experiencing the world in ways that we hope are deeply poetic. What is the role of, um, well, as Plato would call it, gymnastic in the formation of a person in the liberal arts? And it seems like that's um, uniquely present at Wyoming Catholic. People seem to be moving quite a bit. Yes, they are. Um, gymnastic, of course, in the Republic, where Plato first discusses it, has to do simply with physical training, you know, which is complemented by music, by which he means poetic education. Now, he's thinking, obviously, I think of children, that, you know, of, of students considerably younger than ours. But the insight of John Sr., who started the Integrated Humanities Program at the University of Kansas back in 1970 or so, was that students coming up now have not had the, the level of experience of reality that used to be common to, you know, to everybody growing up on a farm, say. But the, so the gymnastic element is, is more or less a way of finding the place of that student, at, you know, as an incarnate being in the real world. What does it mean to, to be an embodied soul, you know, and to experience the world um, as it is and all its wonder? So that gymnastic element for us means certainly backpacking, um, you know, the hiking through the wilderness, but all the other experiences that the students have here, uh, which include rock climbing and kayaking and horseback riding, a huge part of our program, um, all the things that they, they do on their outdoor weeks, you know, are part of what make up this gymnastic education, which is difficult to separate from the poetic education, mm -hmm. as we understand that. Yeah. Uh, you're a liberal arts college, and, and that means something specific. And there's thousands of colleges calling themselves by the same name that seems to, me some, seems to mean something uh, distinct, at least. Uh, what is the distinction um, when we speak of liberal arts uh, at, at a place like Wyoming Catholic or liberal arts at a place like your run-of-the-mill state college? Great question, because the liberal arts are widely interpreted to mean anything that's not hard science, you know. Um, so liberal arts at some places might 
include even the social sciences or things. It's just difficult to know what people mean by liberal arts. Here we we go back to the tradition of you know of the West, um, the classical understanding of the liberal arts is the trivium and the quadrivium. So all of our students study logic, you know, grammar at least in terms of you know their immersion in Latin uh, rhetoric. We have you know. Um, a whole course, for example, on oral rhetoric, where they, you know, learn the principles of speaking. Um, quadrivium, you know, the sciences and so on that uh, that are involved in, in understanding the quadrivium. Um, we, I'm not saying we strictly adhere, you know, to the to the seven liberal arts as they were presented at, say, in the Middle Ages, but we certainly understand them uh, more in classical terms than most people. And we certainly understand them also as liberating. Um, you know, liberal is such a charged word these days. that I've, I, We ran into a guy on the plane once, my wife and I, who said, liberal arts? What are you teaching people to be liberal for? You know, so it has this kind of political charge to it. But understood rightly, it's what liberates the student into into full humanity, and that's certainly how we understand it. Would you say that something like the opposite of that is happening at other institutions calling themselves by the same name? In other words, I see students going there and, um, you know, coming out with just untenable amounts of student debt um, and really not the, not the capacity to think in any broad way. Um, and it seems like anything but uh, liberation, freedom is happening through this. So is this an imposter calling itself by the same name? And what is our response to this? Well, one response financially is to limit student debt, which yeah. is what we've done. Well, you know, the student cannot graduate with more than, say, $20,000 in debt. At some places, you know, that, that balloons to 100000 or more just for an undergraduate mm -hmm. education. But that's, that's the least of it, you could say. Um, places calling themselves liberal arts often are uh, hotbeds of a kind of indoctrination. They, they take the whole social agenda that is, is sort of being, well, not sort of, it is being foisted on, on American students, whether they want it or not. Um, it's an ideology of, of equality that has nothing to do with with liberation of the human person. Um, it's a it's guilt ridden. It's uh, full of political correctness in every which way, and I find that um, more than anything, a kind of constriction of the human spirit that is the opposite of what liberal arts ought to be doing. How does an institution like Wyoming Catholic, if it's doing something in a way that's diametrically opposed, but, but you know, we have the same terminology here. Everybody's calling themselves liberal arts, but we're doing different things. How do institutions like Wyoming Catholic set themselves apart uh, to, in the eyes of the public? Well, yeah, how do, how do you, I mean, it's kind of a marketing question, I suppose. Yeah. You know, how do you present what you're doing? Um, it's sort of like explaining liberal arts to those who've had no experience of it. Uh, yep, difficult. Yeah, it's difficult. 
to anyone who's had the experience, you don't need to say that much. But to those who haven't, it's it's a, always something of an issue. But let me let me put it this way: when our students go into the classroom, they're going in there to to study a particular text, you know, or say it's uh, Homer, or say it's Thomas Aquinas, or um, Saint Augustine. The teacher is sometimes going to, you know, give a little uh, opening information to lay the groundwork for the discussion. But the real point of the class is to have students think through freely with each other what the what the central questions are of this text. You know, what it, what does it mean to be heroic in the Iliad, right? Uh, what, what is the nature of law or nature of justice? It's a nature of justice, say, in the Republic. And when you're able to think through those things without, without a kind of artificial restriction, you know, here's what you're supposed to think, here's what it's, you know, kind of illegal to think, then that's, that's immensely liberating to the students who undergo it. It also gives them long and deep practice in thinking through the questions on a on a whole range of of subjects uh, that I think um, again is part of the liberation of them in terms of um, the contemporary world where things tend to be more specialized, you know, and go into certain you know quick um, professional tracks. And encountering these. Um these great questions, you know, students, you probably see it in them and it's beautiful, but for the first time being woken up by wonder, by admiratio. Are you saying they're woke? That's right. (laughs) Ultra woke. Yes. Um, uh, How is wonder cultivated in a student who's been in many ways conditioned against wonder through prior anti-education? I think the first way it's cultivated is simply by putting the student in the position to experience it on his own. Um, You can't make anybody experience wonder, but you can put someone in a circumstance where, you know, the sun's coming up over the Tetons and, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's pretty amazing. Uh, Not to feel something at that moment would be... uh, against the grain of being human. So those, those kinds of experience um, in the outdoors, I think, prepare the students or soften them in a way, you know, to, to what it is that they're going to be finding also in the text that they're reading. Uh, to be open to being startled, you know, by a new truth is uh, really something. But, yeah, I think people are conditioned these days not to be open to wonder. And that's because they tend to think of everything as, as man-made. Mm-hmm. You know, the whole technological culture around us is, is man-made. Um, everything they see, if they're going to parks and things like that, are sort of deliberately arranged. So if there's not this encounter with with the mysteriousness of something that's obviously not man-made, you know, that's given by God, um, then I think wonder is harder to get at. Do you see that being shocking to students at first? Like when they show up and there's, you know, a no technology policy, no cell phones, 
I mean, they're allowed computers, but no cell phones. And it's beautiful to see. Like, people are walking around. Right. Without look, their cell phones. Without their cell phones, <laughs> looking at each other. Yeah. I was in the coffee shop last night, and I actually got a funny look when I took out my cell phone. <laughs> it's like, we don't do that here. Who's this guy? It yeah. was great. Yeah. Um, is that difficult for students at first, or do you think they show up pretty thirsty and ready for it? Well, most of our students show up pretty ready for it. I mean, they know what they're getting into. Yeah. You know, they know we have a cell phone policy and so on. Um, I think if you took the average American 18-year-old, you know, and suddenly <laughs> put him or her into this circumstance, uh, you'd get a, a much more of a shock than you get from our students. The other thing I'd say, though, is that the the opening 21-day program is, is a kind of um, introduction, you know, to doing without technology. They're up there without any connection, you know. There, there's a... The leaders have a, you know, satellite phone they can get in touch with somebody with, you know, if there's an emergency. But otherwise, you know, that, that's the kind of introduction to, to our curriculum in that way also. It makes a huge difference not to be in that state of constant distraction that I think is typical of most places these days. You're a convert. Yes. And uh, I've read uh, that uh, the work of Flannery O'Connor was helpful to your conversion. Uh, tell us how. I read Flannery O'Connor in a freshman English class at the University of Georgia, where my teacher was a man named Marion Montgomery, who is really one of the um, great scholars of Flannery O'Connor. In fact, he has a whole trilogy about her um, that centers on other centers on her, but also deals with lots of other writers. And the last volume is Why Flannery O'Connor Stayed Home. Mm. <laughs> um, other ones being Why Poe Drank Liquor, you know, Why Hawthorne Was Melancholy, things like that. Um, but studying Flannery O'Connor with Marion Montgomery was illuminating. I was uh, faithless at the time. I had grown up Methodist, but I had sort of lost my way you know, in terms of, of faith. And seeing the, the kind of seriousness and depth of what Flannery O'Connor was doing in her stories startled me. Um, it, um, it was an engagement with a, a, a major intellect. And I have to say, at the time, I thought that, you know, religious people didn't have any intellect. You know, that yeah. was, that was yeah. sort of my idiotic teenage view. Um, and that started me. It took me uh, several years after that, you know, before my actual conversion came. But the seeds were planted there, no question about it. Uh, she has a way of shocking the system and inoculating one against uh, a certain pharisaicalism, I think. And we realize our own uh, temptation to that uh, through her characters in a shocking way, right? Uh in the company of, you know, pious Catholics and attempting to cultivate a school of, of, of pious Catholicity, there is that um, temptation to sort of insulate and, um, uh, you know, and fall into that trap of, of uh, Pharisaicalism. How do you cultivate pious Catholicity at a place like Wyoming Catholic um, without producing the... Uh, pre-revelation Mrs. Turpins <laughs> of the world? That's a great question. And, and there always is that temptation, you know. Um, 
Because I don't see it in your students, by no. the way. Like, you, you can go no. to certain Catholic bubbles, and right. there's this, right. like, we got the truth. Right. They don't have it, but right. we got it. And here, it's, um, there's a human respect that's at work and a Catholic piety, which right. I find beautiful. Well, I mean, that's great to hear. Um, how we do it, I think, is, is a result of the way the whole curriculum works. In other words, there's always something about what we do to humble you. You know, humble the student. Um, if they're good at one thing, they might not be good at another, you know, and so on. But the pharisaical part is is the tough part. Mm. And th I think that's especially true if you think that, you know, your way of, um, you know, say the extraordinary form is the only real way or or the extraordinary form is, you know, is mothballs, you know. I mean, you know, attitudes that students can get into liturgically, I think, can sometimes lead to a particular kind of Pharisaism. But um, we, you know, we have all forms of the Mass here. We also have Byzantine, Byzantine liturgy, yep. you know, as of this year, which is another wonderful addition. Uh, it keeps you from getting too hardened into a particular way of thinking. Um, I think also there's, there's a way that being in town, you know, here in Lander, uh, helps kind of mitigate against that, that sort of Pharisaism, mm. um, interacting with people on a daily basis. Who but the cowboy culture. Cowboy culture doesn't hurt yeah. a bit. That's, <laughs> That's right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, going back to the liturgy, I, I had the privilege of joining the, the students for the Thursday liturgy, and it was, it was, it was splendid. Yeah. Um, what is the role of the liturgy in the formation of a student? Well, it, it's huge. Um, you know, beauty in the liturgy is, is primary to us. Um, as I said earlier, we have the extraordinary form mass three times a week, uh, twice during the week, and then early on Sunday morning. We have our choir, which performs, or not performs, but is present at the um, extraordinary form liturgy on Sunday morning and the all-school litur liturgy that you attended yesterday. Um, liturgical prayer is obviously the, the highest, most formative prayer, you know, for, for someone in the church. So to be schooled in the, the best ways of doing it is certainly, you know, the formation of the Christian soul in many ways. Because it's not just private formation, it's, it's obviously always communal. Um, you understand yourself and your prayer as part of as part of a, the prayer of a community, a congregation, you know, the body of Christ. So, yeah, this school has a uh, a monastic flavor about it. There's uh, there's work, there's prayer, there's a there's a deep rhythm of life, there's a contemplative silence and a wonder. Mm -hmm. um, was that intentional by by the founders? in the administration to sort of cultivate this collegial monastery? Uh, or is it something that's just more organic based on what you've put together? Um, I think there was a deliberateness to it. And I say that in part because our first president became a Benedictine monk. <laughs> wow. <laughs> After he left. But, um, the, you know, the rule of St. Benedict is very important to our, our college. We don't, 
exactly form the college on its, you know, on its principles. Of course, you can't do that, but we respect it highly. And this fall, we're having our all-school seminar on the rule of St. Benedict. We're going to spend the day more or less deliberately in a Benedictine way, you know, as you would at a, at a monastery. Um, and that opens into a larger question, which, I'll, you know, is the discussion of what's now called the Benedict Option. Mm. You know, are we in a situation when we are doing more or less what St. Benedict did, you know, at the end of, at the end of Rome? Are we setting out in a new direction with, a, with an intentional community that is setting itself over against the culture at large? In a way, that's that's obviously true. Um, in another way, I think we have to be open to the world and um, accepting of our place of responsibility with respect to our influence in it. Um, I, I I loved your your work on uh, students with range, and and I know that as you said, it's so hard to convince somebody the beauty of of a liberal arts education without them experiencing it firsthand. But the number one objection, I, I you know I've I've received and I've uh, you know I've gotten from you know students' parents who uh, are sort of weary of sending their kids to a place like this is is what are you going to do with that? Um, what job are you going to get? Uh, how are you going to be useful? And what is your response to that objection? Well, it's a first of all, let me say it's a legitimate concern. Uh, you're paying a lot of money. Um, you're educating a student in ways that don't translate into immediate financial returns. So what you, you know, you have to understand that this is not education for a job. It's education for your life. It's the formation of your soul for eternity. It's not just, you know, it's not just um, put into one track for, for one purpose, which often, given the, the changing uh, economic circumstances in the technological world, will often be irrelevant in a few years anyway. Our students are uh, capable of, of doing anything. And, you know, it's easy to say that. Um, and to me, the question is not so much addressed to us as it is addressed to, to those people who are, are hiring. You know, why don't you give, give these students a try? I think you'll be pretty startled at, yep. at, at what you'll find their capacities are because their minds are are accustomed to move across a whole range of topics easily, you know, to synthesize things, um, to 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 bring them uh, easily to to speech, you know, to be articulate, to to be reasonable in making presentations. And I don't want to reduce the liberal arts to say, well, you know, you can always count on good writing and communication skills from a liberal arts major. That's not the point, right? Uh, though it's true. You know, if it's if they really are taught liberal arts, um, the truth is that these are much more complete human beings than than, than young people who have simply been trained into one um, one particular job track. 
And have you seen that these students, as they graduate, have no problem finding gainful employment or going to grad school or really doing whatever they want to do? I haven't heard any difficulties. I mean, right. there, of course, there's some who are, you know, gosh, I remember when I was their age. You know, I don't know what I wanted to do. So I don't uh, discount the fact that there may be some who take a little while, you know, finding what they're going to do. But I don't have any... Um, real concerns that they're they're going to be crippled for life you know by, by not say taking engineering or you know computer science can you explain to the listener the difference between an education that would be um useful and an education that would be useless but an end in itself yeah um the uselessness is is to me always an overstatement, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, useless in the sense that things are are worth knowing in themselves, like being happy. What's that useful for? Mm-hmm. You know, does that help somebody out if you're happy? Well, you know, it's an end in itself. It's it's what it's what you aim at. Um, you know, blessedness. You know, um, and the the truth of things is an end in itself. These are uh, worth pursuing, even if they. If they have no tangible benefit, you know, in the on the short term, uh, the useful education in the traditional understanding of that, I mean, going back to the ancients, is is training. You know, it's learning how to how to do something. It's, um, it, yeah, it's useful. A techne. It's techne. You're right. Which uh, you seem to have in spades at Wyoming Catholic. I mean, these 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 students are. They, they can do anything. They can do anything. <laughs> they yeah. seriously can. Yeah. Um, they're, so co- it, they're competent humans. They, they astonish me. Yeah. Uh, we had a just quick anecdote. There yeah. was one of our um, seniors was over at our house uh, outside of town, and we were keeping some horses uh, for, the, for the summer. And they got out, you know, and my wife was there by herself, with this student who was, you know, helping with some gardening. And the student said, oh, I'll go get them. And she went down. She not only uh, went down and found the opening in the fence and repaired that with post hole diggers and, and so on, <laughs> but then, then she went over, found the horses, brought them back, you know, pinned them up and, and so on without without even thinking about it. And that's, the, that's the kind of competence and um uh, you know, our students have. And it, and it crosses all kinds of ranges like that, practical and intellectual. So you can really do anything you want with this sort of education. Absolutely. I mean, med school, yeah, we law have, school. Yeah, we have students in both, right? Um, and one of our graduates down at Ave Maria Law School has, you know, distinguished herself uh, highly. You know, she's probably going to be hired by the... Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, so she's, you know, they can do anything. Is there a particular sort of, let's say, high school age student who you would recommend uh, is being an especially good fit for a place like Wyoming Catholic College? I would say two things. Um, well, three, seriously religious. In other words, if they're seriously interested in their religion, um, this is a good fit. If they have a spirit of adventure, so they're not uh, not content to just kind of uh, stay in the usual track. 
um, be safe. You know, uh, if they're willing to put themselves at risk, this is a good good place. Hmm. I mean, that, you don't hear that every day. Is the elevator pitch for a college? Uh, I tell you if what, you're to put yourself at risk. Yeah, come yeah. To Wyoming Catholic. This is. Uh, I've said before in public that our safe spaces are the confessionals, <laughs> but, but um, you know we're not we're not interested in being safe in the usual sense. Yep. We want it we want it to be uh, you know a risk and to overcome real you know real dangers that you know we, we don't get students hurt out there. In fact, they usually get hurt playing frisbee instead of riding <laughs> out in the wilderness. Yeah. But um, I was doing jujitsu this morning with some of them. <laughs> so um yeah, but and and then the other is the other dimension is you know, serious intellectual hunger, you know, for the truth. I think those are those are all things that are typical of our students. What percentage of families come out and check this place out before sending their kid versus sight unseen? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know the percentage. Um most of them come out. Um, either, well, they've they've done a lot of research on us, and usually, a good percentage of our incoming freshmen have already been through the peak summer program, so they have mm-hmm. a pretty good sense of Lander and of the curriculum and of the outdoors. Um, parents usually come out when they bring their kids to to start the freshman program, and that's always fun. You know. Yeah, you'd recommend that. Oh yeah, yeah. Where do you see this place? Or how do you see this place in the next decade? I think we're going to continue on the same trajectory. I mean, we're, we've got a lot of plans for campus expansion right here in town. Um, we like being embedded in, in Lander. Uh, in terms of curriculum, I don't see us changing. I mean, we're we're honing. You know, we're trying to make it ever more integrated and. Um, vital you know as a curriculum but i think what we're doing is is working and you know you got about 150 students uh, right we have now. about 180 180 right? and i expect we'll hit 200 in a year or so and then our, our plans for expansion include um, various places in town that we're hoping to acquire where's the sweet spot as far as total student body and class size i think uh class size 18 mm-hmm. you know for a regular class uh, student body as a whole no more than 400 ever yeah. and that's decades out i suspect given the example of, of thomas aquinas um they i think they're close to 400 and they They've been working up to that since their founding back in the early 70s. Speaking of TAC, is there a particular kind of student that you think could thrive here versus there? Obviously, two excellent schools that have the same pedigree, um, but it seems like a different flavor. How would you describe that? It's interesting that that you say they're the same pedigree because they are and they aren't. Yeah. Um, Ronald MacArthur and John Sr. were were good friends, and they taught together every summer down in Laramie uh, all through the 60s. And in about 1970, they split. Ronald MacArthur went to become the first president at TAC, and John Sr. went to form the Integrated Humanities Program. John Sr. was asked to be on the faculty at TAC, and he didn't want to because he didn't think contemporary students are ready for the great books. He thought they needed this kind of poetic experience before they were um, able to really take in 
what what reality is. So some interesting differences. We have a lot of TAC graduates working here, both as faculty and staff. Yep. Um, so lots of understanding of the TAC model, but also a lot of um, emphasis from the John Senior dimension. Mm. So you know, if the student, uh, I want. I don't think our students are in any way intellectually inferior to those who go to TAC, mm-hmm. but there's a difference in in sort of the interest in in the poetic in the experiential that that might be uh, you know might be a major distinctive there. Yeah, and if I were stuck on a desert island, I'd probably go for a Wyoming Catholic company over TAC. You'd be more likely to get off I'd the desert island, probably get off the island <laughs> a little quicker. Um, or, or survive while you were there. Yeah. 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 Uh, what do you think? So, so speaking of these different, uh, you know, currents of the liberal arts, you know, and people are popping up, and there seems to be a growing market of it, as evidenced by the opening of TAC's new campus, mm-hmm. as evidenced by the growth of Wyoming Catholic. But we're still sort of fighting our own little battles, you know, and off, off in unknown parts. Um, do you think there's a case to be made for? Um, a broader unification and promotion to the public? As we said earlier, there is a marketing problem. Do you think the liberal arts need a better branding? That's probably the case. Um, I was at this conference at Oxford in England um, a couple of weeks ago, and I was talking about the kinds of colleges that had sprung up in a Sort of in the wake of Vatican II and Land of Lakes decision, you know, in the 60s, um, Christendom, Thomas More, Magdalene, um, TAC, you know, and we're kind of the generation after that. But small Catholic liberal arts colleges that, you know, have a strong emphasis on great books and so on. Isn't there a way we could pool our resources and do some better marketing? I, I, there probably is. In fact, um, I've, I've thought about this. I've talked about it with, with several people over the last year or so. Um, how to do that and how to stop thinking of ourselves as you know, competing with each of those others is, is, a, is kind of the hurdle to get over. Because uh, we think, oh, we lost that one to you know, TAC or Thomas More. That's, that's not the way to think about it. Amen. So, you know, finding the students who are interested in this education and finding the way that uh, which school is the best fit should be our common endeavor. I don't have any doubt about that, but, you know, there are just some hurdles. To and there's a market for it. Yeah. I mean, is. especially when you see you know, everybody coming out of undergraduate, you know, with the same degree. Right. Tons of debt, right? Unemployable, exactly. There's got to be another way, and and you've got it. It's just we got to get the word out. Got to get the word out. That's part of our mission, actually. That's why I'm. That's why I'm here taping this. Is is to get the word out about this treasure uh, that that is available to everybody. Right. Well, as and I wish you all the best at Albertus Magnus Institute. Uh, As I pointed out to you just before we got on here. That was one of the names that was considered for this place, Albertus Magnus College. I'm so glad you didn't take it, because <laughs> we wouldn't have done so well right. as Wyoming uh, Catholic uh, Institute. Uh, well, <laughs> right, well, you know, our Wyoming identity is what do you think? What do you think about uh, St. Albert the Great? What is, what is his place in the, uh, in the patrimony of, of the liberal arts? Well, um, 
My field is literature, so I'm not going to venture too much there. But I, I think his um, his work as teacher of Aquinas, right, yeah, yeah, is yeah. pretty invaluable. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and the and the his is you know what we would call science now. I mean modern science. Like he he had it both covered, and there seems to be a false dichotomy between the hard sciences and the liberal arts. I, I think there's a false dichotomy there. There's much to, to heal, you know, in the way that education and learning are, are understood. And I think the, you know, the secularity that set in with the Enlightenment has, um, has just pushed apart things that more naturally belong together. Amen. Well, Dr. Glenn Arbery, thank you so much for joining us. Well, it's been a pleasure. and I wish you all the best. Thank you. Learn more at magnusinstitute.org. That's magnusinstitute.org. Copyright Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. All rights reserved. Mm -hmm.